Chapter 3 Who was King David? One doubt that some people have had regarding the teaching about the tabernacle of David is whether or not we are taking an Old Testament character and making him to be part of the New Testament. My answer to that question is that I would never think of trying to do such a thing because, in fact, the Holy Spirit already did it for us. If we look at a good number of New Testament scriptures, we discover that somehow David entered into New Testament life while he was still living in the time of the Old Testament. It is surely no coincidence that David's name is the first human name that appears in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, and his is the last human name that appears in the New Testament, Revelation 22.16. David is the author of most of the Psalms, and it is surely no coincidence either that the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament more than any other book of the Old Testament. The Psalms reveal David's life and experience, and they reveal the life and experience of New Testament believers. So this is why we are to sing the Psalms, Ephesians 5.19. But the Holy Spirit has given much more evidence than this, showing that David experienced New Testament life. Let's consider it. David's Throne and Kingdom Let's remember what the Holy Spirit revealed to the apostles in Acts 15, that what the Lord was doing in the church was actually rebuilding the tabernacle of David. That alone is awe-inspiring with respect to the life and times of David. However, many years before Acts 15, the angel Gabriel said to Mary regarding her son Jesus, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke 1, 32 and 33. This promise is very similar to what the Lord promised David through the prophet Nathan. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 Since Jesus, the son of David, inherited the throne of David, David's throne is therefore the New Testament throne. It is the throne of an eternal kingdom, and it is also the throne that we are called to inherit with Christ. Revelation 3.21 We are called to be kings and priests who will reign on the earth with the Lord. Revelation 5.10 On the day of Pentecost, Peter, speaking about David, said, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he seen this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. Acts 2, 30 and 31. In light of this and other scriptures, Some might conclude that God's promise to David that his throne would be established forever is being fulfilled spiritually through Christ, the son of David. That is true, but the prophet Ezekiel shows us that there will also be a literal fulfillment of God's promise to David. Ezekiel is filled with prophecies about the last days and beyond. Speaking about the northern and southern kingdoms in Israel, God spoke these prophetic words through Ezekiel. 
and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And David my servant shall be king over them, and David shall be their prince forever. Ezekiel 37, 22, 24, and 25. The twelve tribes of Israel have not yet been reunited, but we can be sure that God will do what he has promised here. David will, in fact, reign forever. A throne is over a kingdom. Through Moses, God gave instructions for any future king of Israel, saying, And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book. Deuteronomy 17, 18. The Bible frequently links the words throne and kingdom as seen above in the words of Nathan to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Therefore, David's throne or kingdom is a revelation of the New Testament throne or kingdom. The New Testament kingdom is what Jesus preached and demonstrated during his ministry. Matthew 4, 17. And he said that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything we need will be added to us. Matthew 6:33. A throne exercises power and authority, and David conquered all of his enemies. Christ too will conquer all of his enemies. Hebrews 10:13. David experienced the grace of the New Testament. You may say, but David sinned grievously, so how can his kingdom be a revelation of Christ's kingdom? David's failures also reveal the grace of God found in the New Testament kingdom. In Hebrews 10:28, we see what was required in the Old Testament when a person sinned. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. David committed murder and adultery what most people might consider to be two of the worst sins against the law of Moses. But David did not die. Some have said that the required two or three witnesses did not exist to put David to death. But there were at least three witnesses, Nathan, Joab, and David himself who confessed his sin, without mentioning Bathsheba. Nathan told David that God had put away his sin, 2 Samuel 12:13 In Romans 4:6 through 8 the apostle Paul explains to us how and why this could happen Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works saying Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin Paul is saying this in the context of God's New Testament grace, as Romans 4.4 shows. In other words, David experienced the blessedness of God's grace that would come a thousand years later through the work of the cross of Christ. Jesus changed the law. To God's people, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 5:17 He then gives us a solemn warning for I say unto you 
that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.20 In the rest of Matthew 5, he explains what he means. Over and over, he mentions a requirement of the law of Moses and then raises the standard for that law. For example, he said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Hebrews 7, 12 declares that there was a change of the law with the coming of Christ. Many Christians assume that the New Testament cancels the law and that the law no longer applies to us. The change of the law that Jesus made was that he raised the bar or standard of the law of Moses from outward obedience to an inward transformation of the heart. The Pharisees tried to obey the letter of the law in their outward actions and appearance, but inwardly they were another thing. Our righteousness must be greater than that. Jesus explained the end result of living as they lived. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Matthew 23, 27. He is concerned about what is in our hearts because that is where he lives. He fulfilled the righteousness of the law and not merely the ritual. To enter heaven, we must do the same. The Apostle Paul calls it the law of Christ. And just as Jesus fulfilled that law, we are called to do the same. Paul wrote, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. The law was changed from the law of Moses to the law of Christ, a law that is a much higher law. David found the higher law. We have seen that David committed what might be considered two of the worst sins according to the law of Moses, and yet the law was not applied to him because he should have died. Jesus also explained how David violated the law and ate the showbread that was in the tabernacle of Moses. When the Pharisees condemned the disciples of Jesus for plucking and eating wheat from a field on the Sabbath, Jesus asked the Pharisees, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Matthew 12, 3 and 4. The priests alone were permitted to eat the showbread because it was holy, Leviticus 24, 9, and no one but the priests were permitted to touch holy things on pain of death, Numbers 4, 15, 18, 32. This law was not applied to David. Jesus refers to this event in David's life and applies it to his own freedom from the rituals of the law. The Pharisees did not understand that he was fulfilling the righteousness of the law and not merely the rituals. He had already made it clear that this is the only path that will lead us to heaven. 
The Council of Acts 15 was held with the principal leaders of the early church to seek God and determine whether or not the Gentile believers had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Jewish believers had gone out from Jerusalem and preached to the Gentiles that those things were necessary for them to be saved. Acts 15, 1 and 5. Some have branded those men as Judaizers. The truth is that what they were preaching had been the only path to salvation for both Jews and Gentiles since the days of Moses and until their time. Many Chaldeans in Babylon became Jews during the days of Esther. Esther 8:17. How did they become Jews, the only chosen people? To be saved, God himself required every male to be circumcised and to obey the law. In other words, to enjoy the blessings of the covenant, they had to fulfill the requirements of the covenant. The apostles knew very well that what was being preached among the Gentiles regarding circumcision and keeping the law had been the path to salvation that they had believed and taught also during their entire lives. They also knew that there was no possible way for the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses if they believed in Christ. Moses' law definitely required animal sacrifices to be offered, and Gentiles were banned from the temple, as Acts 21, 27-30 undoubtedly shows. If those misguided men were simply Judaizers, the apostles could have sent a letter to the Gentiles telling them to ignore those heretics. The question was, had the coming of Jesus changed God's message and changed the requirements for salvation? God does not change, and if we examine both the Council of Acts 15 and the context of the entire Bible, we see that He has not changed His gospel. We are no longer called to fulfill the outward act of being physically circumcised, but the circumcision of our hearts is essential. As Jesus made clear, His concern is the condition of our heart. Paul explained this, He is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans 2.29 Obviously, we are also called to fulfill the higher law, the law of Christ. So, the true gospel did not change. It was only elevated to a higher and more heavenly and spiritual nature. The apostles recognized that the Lord was rebuilding David's tabernacle in the church, and they knew that David did not keep the law of Moses, so they obviously concluded that the Gentiles did not need to keep it either. They surely recognized that David kept a higher law, the law of Christ, as the church of God is called to fulfill in the same way that Christ fulfilled it. David found the entrance to the Holy of Holies. This fact is probably the most wonderful proof that David experienced the blessings of New Testament life. According to Hebrews 9, 1-8, the way into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, was not yet available to the people of God as long as the holy place was still standing. The high priest alone was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was, but only once a year. Yet David placed the ark in a common tent that he had pitched for it, called the Tabernacle of David. In a real sense, that tent served as the Holy of Holies because the God of the universe, who dwelled upon the ark, 
was dwelling in that tent. In David's tabernacle, there was no holy place. Only the Holy of Holies existed. In 2 Samuel 7-2, he told Nathan that while he was living in a house of cedar, the ark was dwelling within curtains. Throughout the Old Testament, this word curtains refers to the curtains used to make a tent or tabernacle. For example, Isaiah 54-2. And from 2 Samuel 6 onward, the ark was in the tent or curtains that David had pitched for it. Then, David did something inconceivable. In 2 Samuel 6.18, he went in and sat before the Lord. Since the presence of the Lord was dwelling upon the ark, to sit before the Lord, David had to have sat before the ark. When he did that, he did something that no one else had ever done before during the previous 400 years. Not even the high priests nor the great prophets like Samuel had ever done it. Once again, David was experiencing the blessings of New Testament life that would come a thousand years later. God's desire is that we all come before His presence in the Holy of Holies, as Hebrews 10, 19-22 reveals. Surely, God permitted David to have this honor because of his faith, because of his relationship with God, and because he was a man after God's own heart. Entering into the Holy of Holies is precisely what God's own heart desires for each one of us, including you. Jesus and David were of the same kind. The first verse of the New Testament is, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1.1 Then, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22.16, Jesus declared, I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. He is the root of David, which means in the Greek that he is the origin or source of David. As the King James Version of the Bible does, most translations use the word offspring to translate the second part of what Jesus explains regarding his relationship to David. However, the Greek word that is translated as offspring is genos. It can mean offspring, but it has a much deeper meaning than what we normally understand from offspring. The Strong's Greek definition includes the aggregate or joining of many individuals of the same nature, kind, and sort. We understand that the offspring of a cow has the nature of a cow. This is what genos means. Jesus is saying that as the offspring of David, he is of the same nature, kind, and sort of person that David was. For a clearer understanding of how biblical Greek uses the word genos, let's consider Matthew 17:21. There, Jesus spoke about a certain kind of demon, and he explained that, This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. The word for kind here is genos, referring to the demons of the same nature, kind, or sort. So, when Jesus said that he is the genos, or offspring, of David, he was saying that he is the same kind of person that David was. He has the same characteristics that were manifested through the life of David. This should not seem strange to students of the Bible, because Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like he was. 
It is important to note here that Jesus is the root and source of the life that David experienced and manifested. That is, Jesus was the one who was revealing himself in and through David. This is the only reason why Jesus could say that he is the same kind of person that David was. He was not referring to David, the sinner, but to David, the psalmist, prophet, and king, the man who experienced Christ's life within him. It was the life of Christ flowing through David that made David who he was. An understanding of this confirms for us the message that the Holy Spirit gives about David in the New Testament. Jesus was the root or source of David's life, and the life that David lived was the kind, sort, and class of life that Jesus would reveal later. David was like Jesus, and Jesus was like David. No wonder Jesus and the New Testament writers quoted the Psalms of David so often, repeatedly saying that what David had experienced was what Jesus also experienced. A few of many examples are seen by comparing John 13.18 and Psalms 41.9, John 19.24 and Psalms 22.18, Acts 1.16 and 17, and Psalms 109.8. In a very real way, the Psalms of David are a prophetic diary of the future experiences of Jesus and of what he wants us to experience as we are conformed to his image. Romans 8:29 At the beginning of Christ's ministry he declared Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets I am not come to destroy but to fulfill Matthew 5:17 At the end of his ministry on earth he declared to his apostles These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Luke 24, 44. Most of the Psalms were written by David and involved what he experienced during his life. So then, what David experienced was what Christ would experience during his life on earth. As John 1:14 declares, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God from the Old Testament, including the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, became life and experience in Christ's flesh or life. He demonstrated the message of the Old Testament Scriptures through the way He lived, walked, and talked on this earth. He based His doctrine and teaching on those three parts of the Bible. Should not we do the same today? In this book, we will see how David built God a spiritual dwelling place that God considered to be much more glorious than the simple tent that he had pitched for him, and even much more glorious than the temple of Solomon. For this reason, God has chosen to dwell in David's tabernacle forever. May we also be permitted to dwell there with the Lord. This glorious privilege will be granted to those who have learned to rebuild the tabernacle of David in their own lives. The Bible shows us how to do that, and we will look at those secrets in the following chapters. Conclusion Did Jesus make a mistake by basing some of his doctrine on the life and writings of King David when he quoted the Psalms? Did the other New Testament writers make a mistake by doing the same? Does the life and writings of King David have nothing to do with the New Testament age? Let's consider a summary of what we have seen. 
David's throne is the New Testament throne. David prepared a dwelling place for God that is God's New Testament and eternal dwelling place, called in Acts 15 the Tabernacle of David. David entered into the Holy of Holies, something reserved for the New Testament believer. The Psalms of David are to be sung by New Testament believers, Ephesians 5, 18-20. We should not sing one thing and live another. Therefore, in the New Testament, we should live and experience, along with the psalmist David, the life and experiences that he had in Old Testament times, because that is what Christ experienced, and he wants us to experience it also. David escaped the effects of the law of Moses because he fulfilled the law of Christ. Although he fell into sin, he experienced the New Testament grace that brings us the forgiveness of sin. We too should know that our past sins and present sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. 1 John 1, 7-10 Of course, this must not become a license to sin in our lives. The true lover of God seeks always to obey the Lord. John 14, 21 But he need not live under condemnation when he has failed the Lord. What is the conclusion of who David is? He is a pattern for New Testament believers, and he showed us the way to prepare a dwelling place for God, and we are called to be that dwelling place, as was David. It is no wonder that David's name appears in the New Testament much more than any other name except for Jesus Christ and Abraham. We want to discover in the rest of this book the lessons that David, a man after God's own heart, has to teach us. No wonder one of the names of Jesus Christ is the Son of David, and during his time on earth, he responded to the cries for help from people who recognized who he was and who cried unto him with that name, Matthew 9, 27, 15, 22, 20, 30, and 31. Do you recognize who he is? If you cry unto him by that name from your heart, he will respond to your cry also. As we saw at the end of the Bible, the Lord declares, I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. Revelation 22:16. He wants to be that bright and morning star for you. In the New Testament, the Lord gave us a man who is an example for all those who would come after. That man is Paul, 1 Timothy 1, 16. Therefore, it should not seem strange that God would do the same in the Old Testament. After all, the Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus used, and it was the only Bible that the church he founded used until almost all of the founding disciples had already died. Surely, that church and those disciples needed an example to live by long before the New Testament was written. They had that example. The evidence is clear. He gave us David, a man who is an example for all those who would come after him, a man after God's own heart. This is what God wants us to be also.